listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. It is great to be with you here in beautiful Kelowna, B.C. It's my first time ever in B.C. I'm from London, Ontario, and uh, I, I have been out west once before for some meetings in Calgary before. I actually, uh, this week, this past week, was in Calgary, just south of there, with one of our associate pastors. We were fly fishing for the week, and so I had contacted Meldon because he had asked me to preach last summer, and I couldn't make it work, and I said, I'll be out in Calgary, and so he invited me graciously. We love your pastor and his wife, Charlotte. I know you're blessed to have them here leading this uh, church plant and being a part of this. And we love them dearly and I have such respect and honor for them. And uh, so I was able to drive over the mountains. That was quite a treat. I tried to type an email to my wife to describe it. And I said, I just can't describe what I just saw in that drive over. And so it's just beautiful uh, part of God's country and creation. It's great to be here. I bring you greetings from Harvest London, Ontario, from our elders and pastors and staff and congregation. We've been praying for you and it's great to be here with you and we're excited to see what God is doing. We planted in 2000 uh, and in 2006, we planted an independent church. We weren't associated with anybody or Harvest and in 2006, we transitioned our church to become a Harvest Bible Chapel. I think we're the ninth harvest, and it's been wonderful to see what God has done, as now there's some 150-plus harvests around the world. And so we're uh, very thankful to be a part of the Harvest family and in a relationship with all of you as well. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 13 if you haven't already. And as you're turning there, I just want to tell you about a sort of a, a missionary woman who I am, uh, have a lot of respect and admiration for and really enjoy reading about. Her name is Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was born in 1867 in the UK. She died in 1951. She was the oldest of seven children and had a pretty easy, normal uh, childhood until the age of 18 when her father passed away. When he died, that brought the family great financial strain, and so she had quite a burden upon her shoulders, helping her mother raise the other children and financially provide for them. A few years after that, she heard Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, speaking about how 4,000 people around this world are dying every hour without ever hearing the gospel. And God moved Amy for, towards mission, and so at age 24, she left for uh, Japan, to serve there, but after 15 months, she needed to return to the UK because of severe health issues. She got some attention and began to heal, and uh, several years after that, God then led her to the nation of India, and uh, she served with an a, a evangelistic ministry there. But after a few years, God began to place on her heart a burden for young children who were orphans and had been used and abused by the, the temples and the Hindu religion for uh, uh, immoral reasons in their temple. And she began to take these young children in and educate them and love on them and parent them. And she founded what is known as the Donovar Fellowship, which is still existing today. And she enlisted some other Christian women and began pouring into the lives of these young children, sharing the gospel and discipling them. And uh, she was shunned, sadly, by most of the missionaries in India. They felt these children were the unlovables and didn't need any attention. And yet her a passion was for these. Ian Murray in his biography, which I had a chance to read just a couple weekends ago, weeks ago on vacation, Ian Murray introduces her as a woman of faith, foibles, and failings. 
He says she was just kind of like you and me. She had her strengths and weaknesses. She was passionate about the Word of God. She so desperately needed help in India doing this mission work, but she would not do it with anybody who did not hold to the inerrancy and truthfulness and trustworthiness and authority of God's Word. And she should, stood strongly for that. He calls her a child rescuer, a scripture stalwart, and an awkward colleague. He said she had a difficult personality at times. She wrote over 35 books while in the mission work. Uh, in 1931, she had an accident that left her bedridden for the last 20 years of her life until she passed away at age 83. She served in India, India for 55 years without taking a furlough. And what really caught my eye was this one uh, statement she made. She uh, received a letter from a young woman thinking of entering missionary life, and she wrote to Amy Carmichael saying, tell me about missionary life. And Amy wrote back and said this, and this is what I want to really put into your hearts and minds. Missionary life is simply a chance to die. Missionary life is simply a chance to die. And I, I would rephrase that a little bit to say to us this morning, the Christian life is a call to death called to die to self. And so that's kind of the thought I'd like to put into your hearts and minds as we look into this passage in John 13. And uh, you're probably familiar with this. The danger of preaching a familiar passage is people tune out, especially with these lovely chairs. Meldon warned me about these chairs. And I, I said, our people fall asleep in just sort of the normal church chairs. I can't imagine how you keep people awake in these beautiful, luxurious chairs. But I, I would ask you to stay with me because this is a, an incredible picture of our Savior and an incredible call that He gives to His disciples and therefore to us about how we're to live our life. And it's oriented around this idea that I must die to self and be all about Christ and others. Let me read a little bit of John 13. I'm going to skip over a few verses and, and we'll pick up the, the rest as we go through. But look in your Bibles, John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking the towel, tied it around his waist, and when he poured water into a basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. Drop down to verse 12 now. When he finished, when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Here, here we have this incredible uh, interaction with Jesus and his disciples. And, and I want to point out in verses 1 to 3, the idea that Jesus could have exerted his rights and his needs at this point in time. And so often you and I do that. What about me? What about my needs? What about my rights and what I'm going through? And Jesus of all times could have done this. John tells us in verse 1, it was the feast of the Passover. We know this as the upper room meal, the Passover feast in the upper room. This is literally within the next 24 hours, Jesus will be crucified. This is his hour of 
need, his time. If ever there was a time where someone could rightly say, hey man, this is all about me right now, we see in a radically different response on his part. John wants to remind us of this. He, he sets the stage. He gives us a context. He says this in verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus knew that what was about to happen. Jesus was not surprised by this. In the three years prior to this in his ministry, some people had tried to take him and make him king, and he said, it's not my hour. Some people had tried to kill him, and he said, it's not my hour. He, he knew what was coming. He set his face towards the cross, Scripture says. But he knew now his time had come. Could you imagine if you knew within the next 12 hours to 24 hours, you would suffer the greatest suffering you would ever face in your life? If you knew right now that within the next 24 hours you would face the most horrendous trial and suffering known to mankind, I think most of us would say, hey, uh, just for a little while, can we make this about me? I, I need to get to what I need to get to because what I'm about to face. Jesus knew and within hours he would be arrested, tried, beaten, spit upon, flogged, have thorns jammed on his head. He, he would have all his friends abandon him, especially his 11 closest allies. He'd be nailed to a tree, hung up to die, never mind that all the sins of those who would believe in him would be placed on him and he would bear the punishment for their sin. He knew all that was going to come in the next 12 to 24 hours. He could have said, it's about my needs and my rights. And yet John, I love what John says. He says, with this setting in mind, knowing that Jesus knew this, he loved them. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, now, now, this is interesting. Why does John mention that Jesus loved them? Why mention it here? I mean, John is known as the apostle whom Jesus loved. John seems to be consumed with the fact that the Messiah would love him. But he brings it out here. Why does he bring this emphasis right here just before the foot washing, just before the arrest and trial and crucifixion that Jesus loved his disciples? I think he wants us to understand what is going to happen as an incredible example of love. He loved them to the end, it says. We don't know quite what end is. This word teleos in the Greek, it means the end, the destination. He, he loved them to the end of their lives. Well, we know he loved them beyond their life, lives. He, he loved them to the end of his life. Well, after he was resurrected, he still loved them. And perhaps some people think that he loved them to the end when he comes back and in the final sort of resurrection and all that. Or it could be he loves them to the end of eternity. Whatever it is, the point is that Jesus loved these men. Now think about this. Think about who's around the table. Think about what's going to happen in the next few hours that evening. Well, when they're in the garden in just a few hours, when he asked them three times, would you please pray for me because of what I'm about to face, when he's so overcome that it's, it's like he's sweating drops of blood, he asked these men to pray for him and they fall asleep three times. He knows that's going to happen. He's sovereign, but he loves these men. He knows one of them is going to betray him. He loves these men. It's such a perfect example of what a true hero is, of one who gives himself and gives himself for others and not concerned about their own well-being. It's one of the reasons we love heroes in our society, the, 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 the military, the firemen and women, the policemen and women, and EMS, and those who would, when most of us are running the other way when danger happens, they're heading into it. We, we've seen just recently a rash of shootings of police officers in the U.S. and how that so sad and breaks us. Uh, my, our oldest son is RCMP officer in Alberta, and, and our middle son is applying right now to the Ontario Provincial Police, and our son-in-law is just coming out of a, he's got a year left in the military, and he wants to join the police, and we 
always had a love and respect for those who would say, listen, it's not about my safety and my comfort. I will sacrifice all of that for the good of another. And here I think John wants us to see this picture of Jesus. That Jesus loves these men even though they were very unlovable at this point. They'll all abandon Him when He goes to the cross. They'll all run. I mean, Peter, remember what Peter does? And Lord, if everybody else abandons you, I will not. And three times Peter denies Christ. And it tells us in the Scripture, even with cursing and swearing. Jesus knows all of this. We've been preaching through the book of Romans. Started last fall. We just ended chapter 7, taking a break for the summer in Harvest London. And I was gripped with uh, Romans 5 in such a powerful book. And, and just even there, the picture of how God loves His disciples. But He loves you and me even when we're not lovable and loving. Romans 5.8, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you understand? He poured his love out upon you before you ever loved him. While we were still weak, he, he loved us. He, 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 he died for us. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not just were we weak when he gives himself, but while we're still sinners, he loved us enough to die for us. And then Romans 5.10, Paul writes, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the, wrath, by the death of his son. Did you see that? The, this is what John's emphasizing here. Don't miss this, that the love of Christ, knowing all that would come, has loved in a way that is just beyond words. It's overwhelming. He's not surprised by anything in your life or mine. But the love of God for these failures as disciples who made so many mistakes and would enter into now some of their greatest failures, he loves them. And John wants to remind us of that. But he goes on to say some really more important things. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knew that Simon, uh, Judas would betray him. The other uh, disciples had no idea. But Jesus knew. Still here, he's offering grace. He washes the traitor's feet. Incredible last act of love. An opportunity for Judas to repent, which he never does. But then notice verse 3. What John wants us to get in our minds before we get to the foot washing. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands... And that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus, sitting there at the upper room table, knows that he is the Lord of all things. And he has come from God. He's eternally God. And he's going back. He's, he, he's eternally God in the future. He knows all of this. He knows his preeminence. He, he knows his importance. He knows his majesty. He knows his power. This is the one in whom we're going to see in a few minutes get down and wash the disciples' feet. Just to help you understand who this Jesus is and what he's about to do in this humbling act, I thought of Colossians 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, 15 and following. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven, in heaven or on earth. That's the one John wants us to remember is about to wash the feet. That preeminent one. And just in case you haven't got a clear enough picture, let me read to you a little bit from Revelation 19. When he's no longer, his glory is no longer masked by the restrictions of his time here on earth. In Revelation 19, verse 11, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what John is wanting us to understand about this Jesus in the upper room. We can't lose the context here. That's why John's introducing this the way he is. Why, why else would he say that he, he knew all things were given into his hands and he knew he'd come from God and was going to God? Jesus, rightly of all people, could have said, hey men, right now this is all about me and my needs and my wants. But instead we see the exact opposite. He could have said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the Almighty, the Eternal, the Omniscient. I'm the Head, the Judge, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I'm the Light of the World. I'm the Prince of Peace. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Living Word. I'm the Bread of Life. I'm the Bridegroom, the Deliverer, the Good Shepherd. I'm the Chief Shepherd. I'm the Ultimate High Priest. I'm the True Vine. I am the Way, the Truth, and the Life. I am the Resurrection, and I am the Great I Am. And, and, and you guys need to be all about me right here, right now. But he doesn't do that. That is the setting here. So next time we get tempted to, what about me? What about my needs and my wants? We need to understand who this Jesus is and what he is going to show us right now. In verses 4-11, to 11, John gives this example of his humble service. With that setting and context in mind, John wants us now to understand what Jesus does. And so he says in, in verse 4 here, he says, Jesus rose from the dinner table. He rose up. They were probably semi-reclining. They wouldn't have tables and chairs like we would. They would have a table raised up a foot or so or two. They would recline on their elbows with their feet away from the table. Jesus rose from supper. He took off his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, now we lose sight of all of this. And, and I have a, just a towel here and a little bit of water. I want to be careful with water around electrical equipment. Don't worry. <laughs> it's a, but, but, we, but we lose sight of this, a foot washing. I, have you ever seen one in a church service? Or in a wedding, perhaps? It, what, what, what happens, though, we, it gets so sterile. And so we lose the whole context of it. Jesus takes off his outer garments. Why does he do that? Because washing someone's feet is a dirty job. When we're in church and everybody's dressed up and we do it, it's all clean and it's all nice, but it wasn't that way then. And Jesus got down on the ground. I mean, think of it, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's about to endure all this pain. He gets down on the ground at the feet of the men who are reclining around that table. And foot washing in their day was fairly common. If you would come into a house because you were on dirt roads wearing open sandals, your feet would be very dirty, very dirty. 
And so when you came into someone's house, they would have someone wash your feet. The lesser would always wash the feet of the greater. The lesser would take the towel and, and take the water and they would, they would wash their feet. The lesser would be, sometimes it would be the students washing the rabbi's feet. That was common. Sometimes, kids, the children washed the parents' feet. I know that's contrary in our culture, the lesser washing the feet of the greater. In terms of honor and respect, that's what he's talking about. That's what the culture was. Slaves would wash the feet of the masters. In their day, and we are against slavery, we understand that's not proper, but culturally it was something they practiced, and they would have two types of slaves. They would have slaves who were people who were conquered from other countries, but they would also have Jewish slaves who had financially uh, had some commitment they couldn't pay back, so now they were indebted in slavery until they paid it back. Foot washing and this, this idea of taking the water and washing the dirty feet was too low for a Jewish slave to do. They wouldn't do it. The lesser washing the feet of the greater. But here we have the greatest one washing the feet of the lesser. I mean, you just can't miss this. It's such, a, such an unbelievable picture here of what's happening in the humility of this scene. Could, could you imagine if you were there? The rabbi, the messiah, the master, the teacher gets down and, and it's like these are stinky, dirty feet this is this is like mud and and like not nice clean water dirty water and foot after foot we so often miss the context of what's happening here i mean i mean these men the smell and it just wouldn't be pleasant like why didn't they wash their own feet when they came in obviously there was no lesser person there in terms of their cultural standard to wash their feet when they got into the upper room none of them thought to wash their own feet it seems like they were too proud to even wash their own feet i don't wash my feet never mind your feet none of them certainly offered to wash any even jesus they didn't offer jesus let me wash your feet why because this was so far below them they would never even think of this Jesus rightly could have said, hey, hey, one of you guys get up and wash our feet. He, could he not have said that? He's the rabbi, the teacher. He's the, the Lord, the Messiah. He could have properly, and guys, listen, in the next 12 to 24 hours, you, you cannot imagine what I'm going to go through. Would you just wash my feet? Everything would be set up in our culture for something different to happen than what happens. Jesus doesn't call any of them to do this. He gets down and he starts washing their feet. And the text tells us, I skipped over it when we read it, he came to Simon in verse 6, Simon Peter, and, and Simon Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Look what Peter says in verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, you've got to love Peter, right? I mean, Peter gets it. This is culturally unacceptable. And for three years, you've been our teacher, our rabbi. We've seen you do massive miracles. We've seen you do thousands of miracles. We've seen you raise the dead. And we've heard your teaching. There's no way, Jesus, you're going to wash my feet. You can almost see Jesus, Peter saying to Jesus, listen, Jesus, if we have to wrestle, I'm stronger. I'm going to win. You're not washing my feet. He's a man of extremes, Peter is. And Jesus answers him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter, if you don't let me do this, you're not a part of what I'm doing. Profound statement. Simon Peter swings to the other extreme. He goes from, there's no way in the world you're going to wash my feet, to now he says in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Okay, Jesus, if I need to let you wash my feet to be a part of this, give me a bath. 
I mean, just let the water flow. And Jesus says something, I think, somewhat symbolically, spiritually here. In verse 10, Jesus says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet. Like, Peter, you had a bath this morning. You're not dirty except your feet. I think spiritually, symbolically, he's like, Peter, you've been saved. You just need some sanctification here. You just need uh, your feet to be washed. And he reminds us here that not all are clean sitting around that table. In other words, not all of them are saved, for he knew, verse 11, who was going to betray him. He knew Judas was not a follower. It's an amazing picture we have here. An amazingly unexpected, humble act of service by the last one you would expect in so many ways to be doing this. Could you imagine if you were one of the apostles? I think that room was dead quiet. Could you imagine when you're there and Jesus comes to your feet and takes your sandals off and you look down at the mud and dirt and you can smell them and you see the Messiah washing and drying your my guess is there wasn't a dry eye in the room. That, that act of love, that act of grace, that, that act of humility was overwhelming. These proud, arrogant men who are going to fail so miserably within hours are being given this incredible gift by this humble act. What an example for us. Now, now John's going to help us understand that this isn't just for the apostles' instruction, but it's for all of us as well. Verses 12 to 15, John's going to share with us the calling for the apostles, the disciples, and for all of us to be like Jesus. Look in your Bibles, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and he said to him, do you understand what I have done to you? He asked him a question. Man, do you get... You have any idea what I just did and why? Now you can be sure there was nobody going, oh, ooh, I know, I know, ooh, ask me. Like, like there, you can be sure they were so dumbfounded. They were, like, none of them were going to answer this. But Jesus is using a teaching moment here. Man, do you understand why I have done, no, no, we don't have a clue. This is all backwards. Everything in our culture says this is wrong. Everything inside us says this is wrong. I mean, just a reminder of who these disciples were. Uh, it's interesting, in Luke chapter 22, and there's multiple accounts of this, Luke 22, in verse 24, it says, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was regarded as the, what? The greatest. Multiple times, the 12 had arguments among themselves as to which is the greatest. Next time you're together with a group of friends from the church or in a small group or something, how, let's see when, when an argument's going to break out amongst all of you of which of you is the greatest. That would be like next Sunday when you come here for church, an argument breaks out in the worship time and you're all putting forth, I'm greater than you. Like it is crazy, isn't it? But these guys did that. And Jesus said to them in Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Mark 9.35 says, he who wishes to be first must be last, the least of all, and servant of all. You see, in our culture, we promote the idea of self. You've got to elevate self, defend self. It's all about you. It's, you're the greatest. Your opinion matters more than anybody else's. We live in a culture that is so focused on me and my and I. 
And Jesus says the way of the kingdom is the exact opposite of that. Man, man, do you know why I'm doing this? He says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right. I'm the rabbi and I am the Lord. I'm your master. I'm your teacher. You're right. That's who I am. And, And he says, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, look at what he says, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That word ought is interesting. That word ought has the idea to be in debt, to be under obligation, to be bound, to owe someone. Jesus says, if I, as the Lord of lords and King of kings, have washed your feet, every one of you must follow this example, and you are bound to this same commitment. God first, others second, you last. You ought to. You have no choice you're obligated to wash one another. Listen, listen, guys. He says, stop fighting with each other about which of you is the greatest. Stop this. Humble yourself. Get low. You, you're bound to this as my, my men, as my children, as my followers, as my church, as my family. You are under obligation and you have the ability because I have saved you and forgiven you and bought you and live in you that you can and must live as I have lived. You see, the call for the Christian person is to stop clamoring for the best seat, the most honor, the best role, and to get low and humble yourself. Now, it's easy to do, isn't it, to humble yourself? It's easy to do here in BC. It's easy to do in Ontario, right? Every day you just get up and, that's a piece of cake. I'm just humble all day. I'm going to write a book on why I'm so humble. You know, it's not easy, is it? I found a way, though. Here, I want to share this with you. I found a way to make it really simple, every single day, there's one thing you need to do, only one thing, it'll just take a few seconds, all you have to do is this one thing, and then you'll be humble for the rest of the day, all right? You ready for this? This is for free, okay? This will make your day. Uh, I've got a little video here to show you this way of being humble every day. Let's go ahead and roll it. Two illnesses that have reached epidemic proportion today are pridefulitis and opinionatia. And many have lost hope. Symptoms include hearing loss, anger, the urge to debate, and delusions of not needing directions. I see pridefulitis every day in my practice. It destroys friendships, marriages, and careers. Sufferers can find it impossible for any advice or helpful input. But now there's hope. Introducing Humilify. After just a few days on Humilify, I was actually able to hear my spouse again. Humilify saved my marriage. I suffered from full-blown, nag-resistant pridefulitis. Humilify completely cured my hearing and my vision. Humilify gave me hope. Humilify has also been shown to be effective against other diseases, like I'm the victimitis, get off my caseus, and I know bestia. Exercise caution. Side effects include sincere apologies, attentive listening, and the realization that other people are intelligent. Make the decision that will change your life. Try Humilify today. Humilify. Isn't it time you swallowed your pride? Now don't you wish it was that easy? Just take a pill every morning and I'm humble all day. We know it's not that way. This call to humility, I think this is why Jesus gave these men this visible, tangible, hands-on example of the call of the Christian, which is to get low and stay low. And in a culture that they had, 
promoting themselves, fighting literally with each other of which of them is greatest. In the culture we live in, this is an example and a call upon our lives which we must come under. I mean, how many leaders have been driven out of how many churches by proud, controlling, sinful parishioners? And how many parishioners have been wounded and broken and profoundly discouraged by proud, controlling, sinful pastors? It's one of the things that attracted me to your pastor is there's a humility there, a gentleness in a very bright and gifted man. And that's attractive to us. Why? Because it's the way of Jesus. Is what we're all called to. I mean, so many would miss this. And, and Jesus wants to make sure these guys don't miss it. Look what he says in verse 15. For I have given you an example. What I just did when he said to them, do you know what I just did and why I did it? And they're like, no. And he said, I did this as an example for you. Now, we all know what an example is. An example is something to be followed. But Jesus knew these men were dull, so he's actually going to explain what the word example means. He says, I have, I have done this as a, given you an example that so that you should also do just as I have done to you. And then in case you didn't make the connection when I said example, that means you must do what I've done to you. Now, Jesus did not mean in your worship services have a foot washing, although there's nothing wrong with that. If you've come from a practice of that, you believe it, there's nothing wrong with having a symbolic foot washing in a service. Not, not a thing wrong. But that's not what he was really saying. He was not saying add it to your symbols. He was saying, do what I have just done. Get low, humble yourself, count others more important. As Paul said, consider others more important than yourself and give yourself, die to self. Die to all your wants and all your needs. That's the call of the Christian life. This is what I've done for you. I've given you this example. Do as I have done. Listen, folks, the Christian church should be the place where everybody is constantly seeking to humble themselves and to serve God and serve others, including serving those who don't agree with us or think like us. But sadly, how many churches across our country are filled with people who are proud and demanding power, demanding control, refusing to forgive, refusing to love, refusing to get along in fellowship, thinking themselves better than others? Jesus says, listen, this is your calling as my apostles, my disciples. And I, he would say to Harvest Kelowna, this is your calling as a church. If you want to impact this city for Christ, one of the primary ways you're going to do it is your attitude as you proclaim the gospel and, and you teach God's word and you live it out as you, you do so with humility and a graciousness and an others-oriented heart and attitude. Now in verses 16 to 20, He's going to get at what I, I just want. I've entitled this way, our motivation to be like Jesus. We've seen the example and the calling, but, but I just want to get at the sort of defense we will throw up because you don't know what I'm going through kind of thinking. In verse 16, he says, truly, truly, that's a little phrase used by John multiple times by Jesus as John records it. Amen, amen. It means like pay attention here. Everything I've been telling you is truth, but I want you to wake up and really focus here because this is important for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, why does Jesus say that right here? A servant's not greater than his master and a messenger's not greater than the one who sent him. Because as we started with this, Jesus is about to face his greatest trial, his hour of greatest need, and yet he gives himself in loving, humble service. 
And I don't know about you, but the times in my life where I have the most struggle giving myself in humility and service and love is when I have my greatest needs. And my pride wells up. I was like, what about me? Maybe this is time for you should serve me and this should be about me. We live in a world that's all about, I need to be happy. I deserve to be happy. I mean, that is so prominent. We, we, we have a culture where our kids are being raised in this and they've learned it from us adults. It's, it's all about me being happy and this trial doesn't make me happy. This person doesn't make me happy. This situation doesn't make me happy. And this is why Jesus is reminding us here, listen, I, I was pursuing holiness. I, I was pursuing God and obedience and not some sort of temporary comfort thing. Our problem is we think we're better than Jesus. I know we'd never say that, but that's really the truth. Jesus says that this was my path, a path of sacrifice and surrender and suffering and service. My path was a path of humility and not my will, but thy will. But we say, well, that's not going to work for me because I'm more important than you are. Are you willing to come under whatever it is on every day and just humble yourself under that? I preached this sermon just several weeks back and the Monday I was in my office just began getting into this text and I got a call from my oldest son who's in Alberta and he and his wife were due on the Wednesday. So this was July 4th. On July 6th, they were due to have their seventh child. And yeah, we kind of did What? <laughs> And, and she was due in two days, and they went to the doctor, regular appointment, and the doctor said, you better get in the hospital. They got to the hospital. He called me. He texted me, coming to him in the hospital, say, please pray. And he called me and said, the baby's dead. Now we have to go through a birth knowing we have a stillborn son to deliver. I remember weeping in my office, weeping because they're so far away and we wanted to be there. But I, I was... I am, I'll just be honest. I was like, God, this isn't right. This is wrong. These people love you and serve you. And, and this, God, this is wrong. And, and over the next number of hours, it was a rough day. And, I, and just praying for them, for the delivery. And when you're supposed to be bringing a baby home from the hospital, you're now having to make funeral arrangements. It just seems so wrong. And God just began to press on me. I am sovereign. I, am, I know all things. You don't. And you need to humble yourself and come under whatever it is I'm doing. Over the next couple of days, it was a joy for us as parents to see our son and daughter-in-law just leaning into the Lord, to see the church they're a part of just coming alongside them, to see them coming under this and they're still suffering they're, they're driving home they'll be home on Tuesday back in Ontario we haven't seen the kids for a couple years and but they're still so wounded and broken but listen listen this is the whole call of getting low we're not in charge we don't know everything it's not our plan it's his plan it's not our will it's his will and, and, and the call of the Christian life is to get low and humble yourself. And that includes serving others. It's not about your happiness or your comfort. It's about God's glory and God's plan. And God's always working everything for his glory and our good, even though it doesn't feel good some days. Amen? But he's at work. Look at what he says in verse 17. Please understand this. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you, what? Do them. It's not just head knowledge. Not You're not blessed if you can reiterate this and teach somebody. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Listen, the world says blessed are you if you elevate self, promote self, defend self, and serve self. And God says blessed are you if you die to self and give your life in service to me and others. And he has to say that because it seems counter to everything that speaks inside. God, my plan's best, my way's best, taking care of me is best. And he says, no, 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 you're wrong. By faith, you need to trust me. The best thing for you, blessed will you be. I'm telling you, as I get into now pushing towards 60, listen, I can I tell you after 20 some years of church ministry full time and before that in a volunteer role, can I tell you, you can never, ever go wrong with putting God first and others second. This is what he's telling his disciples. Such an important reminder for all of us. God is all-knowing. He's in control of all things. He's always working things for your growth and godliness and faith and maturity. He's passionate about your walk and your intimacy and your fellowship. He's not about your temporary happiness. This world's not your home. The things of this world are temporary and fleeting and passing away and soon to be gone. God's passionate that you would be in relationship with him and walking with him and growing in him. And that's why he's saying these things. It's interesting, even verses 18 to 20, he's just reminding them of some truths of his sovereignty. I'm not speaking to all of you, he says. I know whom I have chosen, but scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and lifted his heel against me, he's saying, I know one of you is a traitor. Why is he saying that here? Because he wants them to remember later on, listen man, nothing caught me by surprise. That that accident, that illness, that loss, that end of a relationship, that was not a surprise to me. I'm sovereign over all things. Listen man, for three years you had no clue that one of you was a traitor, but I knew all along. So I'm sovereign over all of this. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, who, that I am God, that I'm king of kings and lord of lords. It's so important to remember this. When you're serving in a church, if you've been around church life, maybe this is your first time in a church service, and maybe you've been for many, many decades, you know it's not easy living in relationship. It's not easy living in families. It's not easy living in church. It's, it's not easy doing relationships long term, and we need this reminder. Can I just encourage you, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're just checking out this whole Christian thing. Can I tell you, listen, the Bible makes it very clear that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us are separated from our creator. Yes, we have a creator. And all of us will answer to him one day. And the way to be rightly related is not religious stuff and doing good deeds and cleaning up your life and putting certain practices. The Bible says if you repent of your sin and believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you will be saved. But what will keep you from that and what will sentence you to eternity in hell is a proud heart that's unwilling to recognize your need and humble yourself before the Creator. And for those of us who have received that gift of grace and been saved, listen, our greatest struggle in this Christian life is constantly going low. We start defending ourselves. We start promoting ourselves. This is why church leadership is difficult because we're all sinners even though we're saved and we struggle with this flesh, this thing called pride. Can I just tell you the answer is to get low and stay low. If you're having problems in your marriage, can I tell you right now, one of the keys 
and blessed are you if you do it, is to get low, humble yourself, put your spouse first. But, but, but they don't, but they, they forget that. You do what God's called you to. Get low, humble yourself, serve them, love them, pray for them, forgive them. You children, that's the call upon your heart and your life. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. But you don't know my parents. I don't have to know your parents. Unless they're telling you to do something that contradicts Scripture, you get low and you humble yourself before them. Can I tell you, in a church, we, we were, we're 16 years old as a church, 16 and a half years now. We planted in 2000. We transitioned in 2006 to harvest. Uh, we, we, were, we were in a church in a box, just like you are. We did a school, never a theater. We did school for 15 and a half years. Just last, last fall, we got into our first building. It's not big enough. It's an older building, but we have three services, and it, it works for us. And we're now not, after 15 and a half years doing church setup, can I tell you, I have some experience with the cost of what you're paying right now to be a part of this church. Can I tell you, as a pastor, I love you for doing that. To have the vision to understand Kelowna needs a, another church that proclaims the name of Jesus Christ as the only way that exalts him in worship, that believes in the power of prayer. And can I tell you, it's going to be costly. I, I've been further down the road than you on this church planting thing. And you, you know this. If you've been a part of this for any length of time, it's a huge cost. Can I tell you, it's worth every sacrifice. And could I ask you to sacrifice more, to get lower, to stay low, to, to give your life for what God is doing here. I'm just telling you, that's the way of God. This is what the call is. Can I remind you of Amy Carmichael's statement? The missionary life is a chance to die. The Christian life is a call to die. And church planting, if you're, you're just coming up to year two, I think, right? And, and, and let me tell you, the run to year five doesn't get any easier. <laughs> is that good news? But, but it, it is the most unbelievable journey and adventure you'll ever have. Nothing else can compare to being all in and what God's doing and see him use weak, frail, failing people like us to transform life after life after life. I just want to close with a few sort of practical conclusions. The call of, a humble, of humble service is a call upon all of us. Here's, here's just four sort of takeaways for you from what we've just learned, okay? The first thing is this. Sacrifice equals service equals others first. That's, that's summing up as best I can that what Jesus is showing here in the call of the Christian life. That the Christian life is a life of service, a life of sacrifice, not to earn anything. That's religion. We're not doing anything to earn standing or acceptance with God. But because he loved us first, because of he's poured out grace upon us and saved us entirely a work of Jesus in the cross, because of that, because he's changed us from the inside, it begins to work itself out and he changes our heart and our affection into this desire to put others first in service and sacrifice. This is true for spouses, for parents, for small groups, for churches, for neighbors, for leaders. Listen, if you're a Christian and carry the name of Jesus Christ, the call is that you would be all about God first and others second. That's, that's with that difficult neighbor that you can't get. God calls you to get low and to serve and love them. God calls you to do that with your spouse. 
God calls you to do that in this church. I don't know any of you. If you're stirring up strife, if you're causing division, if you're demanding, listen, that is not the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is repent and be broken and humble and go low. Second thing, service in the name of Jesus is an act of love. Going back to verse 1, it just so gripped me there that John mentions that Jesus loved these men who were his own and he loved them to the end. And I don't think that's disconnected from the foot washing and what is to come on the cross. Humbling yourself and serving is the greatest way of love. 1 Corinthians 13, many of you had that perhaps read at your wedding. It's the setting of that is the church. Chapter 12 is all about church and spiritual gifts. Chapter 14, all about church and spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is not about marriage, although there's nothing wrong with reading it there. But it's about the church and how we love one another when we're difficult and we don't always get along and some people bug us and irritate us and we get hurt. And it's how to love. It's the way of love, of getting low and serving others. The third thing I'd like to remind you is that this is your call if you're a child of God. This is your call. doesn't matter what your income is. doesn't matter what your house looks like, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the education you have. The call on every Christian is the same call, is to get low. There's one Lord in the church. There's one master. There's one head. There's, there's one ruler. There's one who's in charge. His name is Jesus. And every one of us is called a servant or a slave of Christ. And so I would just encourage you. You're saying, well, this isn't for me. This is for somebody else. No, this is for every person who's a Christian. And can I tell you in church planting, what, what you need to do, every person in this, we don't need anybody saying, well, that, that job's beneath me. I'm not going to, you know, set up and take down. We carried boxes for 15 and a half years. I, I get it. It's hard. Everybody needs to do whatever it takes. And nobody should be saying, well, that's beneath me. That's not, listen, if the Savior could get down and do the lowest of low jobs, I think he expects his people in his church to do the same. And the fourth point is, Greater responsibility equals greater sacrifice. I, I just want to uh, sort of end with this. Greater responsibility equals greater sacrifice. Some people falsely believe if I can get an increasingly important role in the church into more leadership, then I don't have to do that service thing as much. Can I tell you, you do not understand leadership in general, and you certainly don't understand church leadership if you're thinking that way. I know your elders. I know your elders personally. I know Meldon, but I know Robbie Simons and John McMullen and Chris and, and all those guys from Oakville. We're very well connected with Harvest Oakville. We have a real love for them. We have a massive respect for them. You have an incredible elders team. I know most of them are across the country, but can I tell you that I know them all personally, and I can tell you I don't know of more men who are greater, have a greater commitment to humility and dependence and the godliness. And can I tell you, if you carry an increasing role in this church, the call is not that others would serve you. The call is that you would sacrifice more and serve more and surrender more and give more and put others first more. That's the way of Christ. That's the way his church should function. Father, thank you for this picture that John gives us, thank you for your word that it's so applicable today in 2016 as it was in the day it was written. Thank you for this example of Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for the, the, the fact that you even describe yourself as I am gentle and humble of heart. And I pray that we as your children would be 
That we would follow your example, not, not generated by some will and some human means, but because your spirit lives in us, we, we humble ourselves, be filled by your spirit, controlled by your spirit, yielded to your spirit, and would the fruit of your spirit be our words, our actions, our thinking, our attitude. Father, have your way in us. We, we surrender, we offer ourselves. We, we, I, Father, I pray that those of us who have been proud and, and, and demanding our own way, that you would, you would bring us to repentance. And when we repent, thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our transgressions. Thank you that today's a new day. The beginning this day, we can walk and live and talk, especially in your church, as your children should. So have your way with us as your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.